Perhaps some of you might remember that a few years ago, a, a French satirical newspaper published cartoons depicting the Muslim figure Muhammad. And the publication of these images provoked a terrorist attack uh, on the newspaper because making an image of Muhammad breaks Islamic law. Now, this, this event stirred controversy from multiple angles, and one of the questions asked was the legitimacy of the cartoonist's actions in publishing these drawings. And the, the, the verdict seemed to be that he had the right to do it, certainly, but that left a question open about whether he should have. And even from a Christian perspective, wherein we certainly deny Muhammad's authority, we can see how maybe we ought to question how offending Muslims in this way, in this way, where where no truth claim or evangelistic effort was set forth, was useful. The simple point is, is that just because we can do something, just because we have the right to do it, and just because we can make a case for its acceptability, not the fact that it's best, but that it's acceptable, none of that means that we should do it. There may be better and more beneficial courses of action for us. And along those lines, Paul made a similar case. In 1 Corinthians 8, 7 to 13, where the issue was about meat sacrificed to idols, which remains the topic essentially through chapter 10. Now, some Corinthians, as verses 1 to 6 revealed, had argued that since these pagan idols genuinely are false, underlined false gods, they don't really exist as, as anything other than than a material, non-spiritual, inanimate piece of rock or, or wood or whatever composes them. And so then it makes no difference whether this meat that we buy is linked to them or not. And Paul, who was certainly more a theologian than a pragmatist, addressed the issue with a multi-layered response. He refused to give them. Just yes or no, go do this as an answer. And he he agreed that they were right theologically, that these these idols have no real existence since the triune God is the only true God. But that theological knowledge does not mean that they can neglect to use the knowledge that they have in love toward their other Christians, or fellow Christians. And so that's the principle that he outlined in the first half of this chapter. And in our verses in 7 to 13, Paul spelled out how using theology in love towards fellow Christians looks in regard to those issues of eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And his practical payoff in this section is that regardless, even if you really do have a right or the Christian liberty to do something, you should do your best to avoid doing things that might provoke fellow Christians to go against their consciences. 
And we can see how that is not simply a first century issue. It may well be that you can make a profound case, theological case, for whatever it is that you might want to do. But the Christian life should be characterized by love that does not insist on its own way, but it empties itself to become a a servant to others. Although it is certainly worth reflecting on the specific issue that faced the Corinthians, there is an obvious principle that abides for us across specific practices and across all time, whereby Christians need to be ready, need to be ready to live in such a way that helps other Christians keep a clear conscience. And so the main point then is that Christians help each other keep a clear conscience. Christians help each other keep a clear conscience. We're going to think about this in three points. Indifference, immorality, and independence. And I, there's a lot here. And there's connections across Scripture here. Uh, and so the normal way I come at things is not exactly what I've, I've done here. But I hope that what you will take from all of this is that there, there is a running principle and a running exhortation that informs all of this about how we need to think about our disposition towards our brothers and sisters. So first, let's think about indifference. So the debate among the Corinthians was about eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And and even if that might seem a bit obscure to us as an issue uh, from this 21st century perspective, it, it would be a major thing in first century Corinth. The city was covered in monuments to pagan gods and dotted with idol worship, food connected to idolatry was not isolated to Corinth and, and pagan temples littered the ancient world. And we even read, did we not, in Acts 15 about how the Jerusalem Council itself had to address this exact topic. So this point, this first point argues that scripture Holistically, particularly from this passage, scripture, although indifferent to, in some, indifferent in some ways towards food of all sorts as such, commands us to avoid real connections to idolatry altogether. Food as food may be indifferent, but we must be disconnected from idolatry. Think about verse 7 with me, if you'll have your Bible open and turn there. However, in contrast to the concession he'd made in verses 1 to 6, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So this verse is about how when someone becomes a Christian, it does not automatically entail a robust conviction uh, that the pagan gods do not really exist. Even the knowledge that these idols do not represent a real God does not instantly get rid of all the personal associations with the religion tied to these idols if someone had been entrenched in that. 
These people used to love these very idols as their gods. They were truly devoted to these false gods before they became Christians. And it's difficult to shake off every heart-level link to these things, even after conversion. It's easy enough for us to understand, right? There are so many things in our life that we despise as Christians from our former life that are not instantly easy to dispose of them. And for them and for us, if Christians indulge their potential lingering affections left for their former God of any sort, then it defiles their consciences or their self-awareness of, of true and false, of what is right and wrong. Verse 8, however, goes on to acknowledge that the food itself tied to these idols is indifferent to our standing before God. The food itself, which is an important thing to note. So food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So Paul conceded that, that eating this food doesn't alter our, it doesn't alter God's assessment of us, which is crucial in this discussion because, because sin does affect our relationship with the Lord. I'm not saying here, and, and hear me clearly, I'm not saying that sin undoes our salvation. A person with true faith in Jesus Christ is in an unchangeably right relationship with God. The bulk of 1 Corinthians, however, is not about explaining that doctrine of justification, but exhorting us to sanctification and growth in our Christian life, faithful although imperfect improvement in holiness. And with that in view, I think that we should think about verse 8 and that it's essentially about the real indifference of food before God, even if it has been involved in some unseemly practice. It's not sin, it seems, to eat this food itself. As Paul instructed later at the end of this discussion in chapter 10, verses 18 to 29, we shouldn't worry about where the food came from if we are just eating it, which is crucial. If it was genuinely sin itself to eat of this food as such, then we should be worried about where it came from. Paul says don't even ask the question. But... We cannot partake of that food, as that discussion makes clear, and we'll consider in weeks to come, but we cannot partake of that food as part of participation in a worship ceremony. The food may be indifferent. You don't get to be involved in the practice whereby that food is produced. And that points us to the indifference of the food itself, but to the sure need... To avoid all forms of participation in idolatry. It, it doesn't matter if those idols don't have a real God 
behind them. Christians shouldn't be involved in things that display religious allegiance to anything besides the true God. The indifference is how God is not swayed to love us more or less because of things that have no actual religious value. There are more things to consider, and we should think about our second point, immorality. So, the last point made the case that that Scripture is indifferent about the food itself, but exhorts us to avoid real participation in idol worship. And uh, this point... I hope, substantiates that case from Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council and then succeeding verses in our passage. So uh, it may be worth flipping to Acts 15 uh, unless you remember it well. This is an amazing chapter uh, and lots of things. It's, it was tempting to turn this into a sermon on that text, but I've restrained myself. So the, the context in Acts was that some taught that you had to be circumcised to be saved. Which means the whole discussion throughout this council related to the Christian's obligation to ceremonial law. Now that's really important. That frames the entire events of Acts 15 under the heading of reference to our obligation as Christians to keep the specific items of the law of Moses. Now, the council decided that it was, I mean, this is an amazing thing, that it was testing God to yoke the Gentiles to the Mosaic law. So they should not do that. But still, verses 19 to 21, they affirm that in light of the fact that it would be to test God, they should not trouble the Gentiles with any part of the Mosaic Law other than, literally translated, to abstain from the pollutions of idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now, the difficulty here is we've got a list of things that I've said as part of ceremonial law, things that are fulfilled in Christ from Israelite life, and included in that list is this item of sexual immorality, which is forbidden by God's moral law and an abiding principle of life for all Christians. So how do we deal with that? I don't think that its inclusion here changes that this prohibition was about ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic law. So, but let me try to illustrate that, right? So a few weeks ago, I led the, the communion service here in, in the morning, which has, as usual, a different order of service attached to the way we execute those services. And in this particular one, we introduce some logistical changes to how we distribute the supper. So in that context, it wouldn't have been unexpected for Reverend Pearson to say something to me like, remember to take note of the abnormal order to prepare for the supper and to think through how to execute new logistics and to have a sermon ready. Now, right, having a sermon is an obvious thing if I'm scheduled to 
preach in the morning, but in that case, it's a really relevant part of that list, isn't it? Even though it abides according to something else. And the point is that I think the same sort of rationale applies in Acts 15. So, so abstaining from sexual immorality is an obvious part of the Christian life as chapters 5 and 6 in this very book made pointedly clear. But since sexual immorality was such a, a major feature of pagan worship, it was worth mentioning it as part of abstaining from mosaic prohibitions that were connected to idolatry. The Jerusalem Council, in in other words, asked Gentile Christians to abide by some mosaic, even though they're free from keeping not the moral law, the mosaic ceremonial law, the Jerusalem Council asked Gentile Christians to abide by some mosaic principles so that they would not be tied to idolatrous practices. Even though some English translations, ours uh, before us, muddy the point here by by saying uh, abstain from things, or other translations say even food polluted by idols, the Greek is clearer that it is the idols that are what pollute. Abstain from the pollution of idols. Pollutions of idols. The, the restriction in verse 29 against what has been sacrificed to idols then, it, then is about abstain from participation in the event where the food is sacrificed to an idol. Abstaining from being in that event, not about the food, strictly speaking. Which then, right, at that point, we can see how this matches Paul's case in 1 Corinthians 8. And since he wrote 1 Corinthians after the events of the Jerusalem Council, we expect his presentation here to to cohere with the decisions made in the Jerusalem Council. So that the apostles and elders at the council, were concerned with other Christian consciences rather than with the specifics of eating food is confirmed in the reason that they stated for abstaining in Acts 15.29 where they say, for, because, from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, which just means that familiarity with the Mosaic law throughout the world binds Christians not to offend consciences in things that may be live issues pertaining to Mosaic law. And that's exactly Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 8, and particularly in verse 9 only in references to consciences that are troubled by former idolatry rather than Mosaic law. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For, because, 
If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? We cannot, we cannot let freedoms that we have expose someone who may easily think our actions are wrong um, because that might provoke them to generally, genuinely sinful practices. We, we cannot put them in temptation by use of even genuine freedoms. Paul's concern here, I think, in, in this verse was clearly not with the food itself, but on if we are seen in the temple when this food is sacrificed. Seen in connection to idolatrous practices. Now, I am aware that it's a live issue for us in some way, a discussion. And a more a modern corresponding circumstance might be something like halal meat, right? Which can trouble Christians, especially in a place like London where it's approximately relevant. So how do we think about something like that? It seems to me, first... That Paul's, a prin- that Paul's principle from chapter 10, verses 25 to 27, of, of not asking where this meat originates applies. Second, so yeah, if you don't know where, where this meat comes from, don't worry about it. Second, I gather, right, so I'm trying to address you in wisdom, but without definitively certain expertise, I gather that although, I mean, this is debated, and you have to use your wisdom and conscience on this, I understand that halal meat goes through a ritual killing, but that ritual is not, strictly speaking, a worship act, which would seem to exclude it from these prohibitions. Third, though, if you deem that ritual to be one of worship, then obviously you cannot participate in that ritual, which corresponds to to not attending the idol sacrifices in Corinth. But the meat itself is not an issue unless you would harm someone's conscience by eating it. If... Your, yeah. If, on the other hand, your informed eating of halal meat might harm a Christian's conscience, whether perhaps they're a Muslim convert, right, or have scruples for another reason, then don't eat it. And I understand, right, so I'm trying to articulate wisdom principles for thinking through this in light of the specific aspects of this text. You may have other wisdom reasons for not eating it. I'm not asking you to dispose of those. I'm saying that in light of the specific items listed in our text before us, 
That's how I think that this cashes out. But either way, if we think about these issues, immorality happens whenever a Christian goes against God's law or uses their freedom. This is not only going against God's law, but also using our freedom in a way that damages another Christian's conscience. Which brings us to our third point, independence. Right, so the, the first point was about how Scripture seems indifferent about the food itself, but idolatrous practices are 100% forbidden for Christians. And the second point argued that the church from the beginning has enjoined God's people to give up some freedoms for the sake of other Christians. And this point looks more closely at the nature of our Christian freedom, Christian liberty. So, right, Paul stated his reasons for giving up aspects of Christian liberty in verses 11 to 13. And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. It becomes really clear at this point, right, that, that regardless of whatever the thing before us is, we cannot let our actions lead others to sin just just because we want something or just because something one way of obtaining meat for example is easier we cannot participate in destroying the one for whom Christ let his body be destroyed if Christ has given himself for the salvation of someone then who are we to abuse the freedom we find in Christ to harm them? If Christ would let himself be killed for this person, is whatever we want, that is an aspect of indifference to our life. It's not necessary if we can give it up or take it. How could that be more important to us than the one who is worth the blood of God's Son? It is not just a disagreement in that case about Christian liberty, but is a sin against Jesus Christ himself if we use our Christian liberty to harm another Christian's conscience. And that makes a really pointed aspect, of brings out a really pointed aspect of this text, doesn't it? Christian liberty is not just there for your fun. I think that too many people orientate the discussion of Christian liberty towards how much we can do and then we batter the weak conscience with theological ideals so that we can do what we want. Paul 
said, get ready to give up everything that is indifferent for the sake of other Christians' well-being because Christ died for them. Which means that we cannot be the reason that they stumble. One of my seminary professors, Brian Estelle, uh, so I went to seminary in Southern California, which is mainly uh, composed of kind of generic evangelicalism. And in America, a big part of that is refraining from things that are perceived to be worldly, even moderate amounts of alcohol and tobacco and that sorts of things. And, and Dr. Estelle was, was fond of profoundly reminding many students who were just coming to embrace Reformed theology that the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 20, which is about Christian liberty, actually never focuses on or lists alcohol or tobacco, even if God has not bound our consciences entirely against those things. But that's not the focus of Christian liberty. Instead, it first says, quoting, the liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, to the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God. We get so wrapped up. Can I I eat this thing? Can I drink that? Can I do this? Am I, am I free? And what if it bothers that person? So be it. I want to do it. And Christ has set me free. And Christ has so many higher blessings for His people. Why ever would we get bothered with one another over indifferent matters, especially to insist that we might take of trivial earthly enjoyment when it would hurt our Christian family? Our independence is not a tool to neglect the needs of our brothers and sisters, but a reminder that neither eating nor not eating commend us to God because Jesus Christ commends us to God. And so then, does this passage not take us right to the gospel? Have you relied on the things you do or do not do to commend you to God? Because if you have, then you've not believed the gospel. Have you even thought that your sacrifices for other Christians or your specific scruples might be the thing that makes God smile on you? Because if you think that 
that is what makes God smile on you, then you've not believed the gospel. It doesn't matter what type of food is in your belly, but what kind of faith is in your heart. We need the kind of faith that sets aside all the good deeds to don the robes of Christ's righteousness, and that drops our sins at the foot of the cross to find God's mercy. In Christ, we, we have complete freedom, which releases us from what we, deserve, what we deserve to give us what Christ earned for us. And because Christ lives for us, He will help us live for Him and also for our fellow Christians. Let's pray. Father God, we see the acute need to consider our brothers and sisters in all things that we might do. And we consider your very serious exhortation in this chapter of Scripture to be aware of how we might use our freedom to the detriment of our Christian family. And so we do pray that you would give us immense wisdom in considering the issues that surround us in our day and age and in our world, and that we would act carefully, that all that we do might be to the betterment of our church family, especially unto your glory pray that you would help us in this and that you would help us not to do this as slavish actions or things that would boost our own pride in what we might be willing to do, but as expressions of joyful freedom. We do not need and we do not need these things and we don't need not to have some of these things. But what we do need is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would cling to Him perhaps more firmly, perhaps with more excitement, ready to live for our brothers and sisters, perhaps for the first time. And we pray that You would help that to happen even now, whatever the case, by Your grace, by the work of Your Holy Spirit, and that we would be sent out from here not overwhelmed by what we may need to do, but overwhelmed by the freedom we have in Jesus Christ, who has freed us firstly from the curse of the law and given us access to you as our God in blessing. And we pray in Christ's name for his sake. Amen.